My name is Pastor George. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church, and uh, I get to read the scripture this morning. So we're going to be reading out of Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read the, pretty much the whole chapter. Hear the word of God, Israel's rejection of Christ. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Remember that these are God's words. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. Now it is not as though the word of God has failed. Because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand. Not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. God's selection is just. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You will say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who, is, who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from this same, the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to display his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much patience 
objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us? The ones he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As it is also as it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people my people, and she who is unloved beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, You are not my people. They there they will be called sons of the living God. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Father, we are here to worship you, to focus you, to focus on you, to know that our direction is to you. Father, help us to remember that this morning as we sing, as we continue to hear your word preached. As we ourselves are thinking about how this passage applies to our life. Father, help us to recognize your voice as you speak to us. Father, be with Pastor Matthew as he brings these difficult words to us. Father, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts to what you want us to hear and help us to apply that to our lives. So be with us during this time that we hear your words spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, keep your Bibles open, if you would. If you haven't opened your Bibles to Romans 9, uh, please make sure that you've done that and that you have that text in front of you. Uh, because what I would like to do this morning is tell you a story. I, you know, th- this is a, a bit of a challenging text. And I thought, how, how can I best help us understand this as a church family? And, and I don't know about you, but, but stories and visuals are just really helpful to me, especially when I'm trying to understand something a little bit more difficult. And so I want you to imagine that the Apostle Paul has invited a Jewish friend and a Gentile friend to a little coffee shop in downtown Rome. And he's sitting there, and he's about to have a conversation to explain some things to them. All right, are you all there with me, having some coffee, enjoying some time together? And the Jew says to the Gentile, so just how did we get here? And unable to resist, the apostle grabs a napkin, which is a a really big napping to my left this morning, and borrows a pen from the barista and says, you know, let me show you. We have to remember that it began where it all began, right? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. God created everything that we see, and then he created Adam and Eve. And I know you know this, says Paul, especially to his Jewish friend, but bear with me. God told Adam to give his seed 
to Eve so that they could have offspring that would be this grand lump of humanity. They would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Children of the promise of God. And from them, we were supposed to then have this massive lump that would then, you know, the kingdom of God would spread and splinter and grow and, and fill around the globe. But the globe. But as I wrote to you, Paul says, in that little letter, remember, that I sent to you a little while back here in Rome, you could read about the, de- the details in chapters 3 and 5 of that letter, but I don't have time to go over that now. But you'll remember that they became marked and stained by sin. It was right in their DNA, their souls and their, their minds. They were saturated through and through with sin so that this stain of sin was passed to all of their progeny and the whole lump of humanity became sinful. There was none righteous. None righteous. No, not one. And all that sin passed to all of humanity. But God... You see, this was not the way that things were supposed to be. And God had resolved to do something about it. And it would begin by creating a people. That's you, the Jews. And he broke them off of this big lump. Right? He broke off one of the pieces of the lump and created another lump called the Jews so that he could save the world. And through this people, as he shaped them and formed them into who they were supposed to be, they were supposed to bring about salvation to all of the world. They were supposed to go back into this lump of humanity and be a blessing to that lump of humanity that now has become the Gentiles. All those who are not Jews are Gentiles. That's you, dear friend. They never really were, the problem is, they never really were all that successful at doing what God wanted them to do. But God knew that all along as well, and he had resolved to do something about it. You see, from this people would come a Messiah named Jesus, and he would, by his sacrifice, save all people, Jews and Gentiles. But the problem was, After Jesus did that in a stunning way, he lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for all the sins of all Jews and Gentiles and rose from the dead as the Messiah. Well, generally what happened was that very few Jews believed that he was in fact the Messiah. Which, said Paul, actually shattered my heart. I mean, they're my people, my family, and their rejection absolutely gutted me. It got me to the point that I wished that I could be cut off from the Messiah, even though I knew that that wasn't possible. Because only Jesus could save them. Well, all of that called God into question a bit. Because how could he be righteous when Jews were rejecting Jesus? But here's where this gets really interesting. Not all of those Jews were really true Jews. If you follow the family line, there were children of Abraham. They were the Jews. But only some of them actually were children of promise. So 
they thought that they were all the children of promise, but they weren't. And there was actually a lump that was being taken off from here that were true Jews. These were actually the children of promise, a remnant inside of Israel that God had made and called to him. He had formed and shaped them to be truly Israelites. So now you've got this new lump, this remnant that are actually God's people. And God says that he did that because he loved some and rejected others. Whoa, 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 says Paul's Jewish friend. That sounds pretty unjust, Paul. That sounds awfully unfair. I mean, there has to be some kind of standard here, right? I mean, what's the basis of making a decision like that? This person I love and this person I reject just because? I mean, good grief, we're talking life and death here. This has some pretty massive implications, Paul. To which Paul replies, fair enough. I completely, I completely understand why you'd ask that question. And to be clear, I don't have a problem with questions, and neither does God. Questions are okay, as long as they're asked with the right attitude. Now, before I continue, I just want to make sure that you're prepared for what I'm about to say. Because you say you want to know, but do you really? Are you truly open to seeing God for who he really is? Not who you might want him to be or have construed him to be or have constructed him to be. And are you really open to seeing reality the way that it really is? Are you ready to accept that there may be things about God and about reality and the way these things work that you don't and can't and may not ever fully understand? I mean, he's God after all, and you ain't. You're just a human. There are things out of your control, but not his. And there are things that are beyond your understanding, but not his. You need to be prepared that not all the questions are going to be answered. And all of the tensions are are not going to be resolved. And I'm okay with that. I've, I've learned to be content in that. So, would you like me to continue? To which the Jew replies, okay, fair enough. I can't make any promises, but I think I'm ready. Good, says Paul. All right. There is absolutely not injustice with God. For... He tells Moses, I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Okay, now that might seem like a pretty strange way to defend whether or not God is just in how he acts, talking about his mercy, you see. But, but give me a moment to explain, and I think you're going to understand. Now, I know that that quote, my Jewish friend, is pretty familiar to you, but for our Gentile friend here, let's recall the story, and I think it's going to be helpful for you as well. It comes from Exodus 32 and 33, and it's that whole embarrassing moment, you know, in our history and God's dealing with us Jews, where the great prophet Moses is, is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, and our forefathers, being the impatient lot that they are, they're down in the valley making a golden calf, bowing down to it, and worshiping it because they figured Moses has up and left them, and maybe God with him. Well, it's just a big mess. 
And after dealing with some of the leaders of that little rebellion by executing them, God seems to be leaning towards not continuing with this people. He's maybe going to call it quits and start over, which causes Moses to get in no small argument with God about sticking with the plan and sticking with his people and moving forward with his purposes. And after a bit of back and forth, well, God agrees. And yet, it's right at this moment in the story, probably because things have been so stressful and such a mess and the future seems uncertain, it's right at this moment when when Moses asks God, not unlike you've just asked God about God, Moses asks God about himself. Right at that moment in the story, he asks Yahweh to teach Moses his ways so that he will know God. And Moses goes one step further. This is absolutely incredible, I think. Moses says to God, God, he says to God, show me your glory. Well, this is amazing because, I mean, who can see God and live? You see God in his holiness, you're vaporized. But God actually complies. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name. What's his name? Yahweh. I will proclaim my name Yahweh before you. And then God says, well, it's this sentence that I just gave you. It's, it's the answer to your question about God's justness. I will be merciful to whom I want to be merciful and I will have compassion on whom I want to have compassion. And God takes Moses picture him like a little action figure, puts him in the cleft of the rock, only letting Moses see his backside so that he's not annihilated in a moment. And as God passes by Moses in the cleft of a rock, showing him his backside, he proclaims his name. Yahweh, he says, Yahweh is a compassionate and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth and maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So, do you see, Paul says to his Jewish friend, in the moment when Moses says that God, in the moment when Moses says he wants to really know God, in the moment when he says he wants to understand God, in the middle of the mess that they have made, when he wants to get a sense of God's glory, God's response is, I am Yahweh. And I will be merciful to whom I will, and I will show compassion to whom I will. This is who I am. I am absolutely and fundamentally free to dispense mercy and compassion on whom I want. So then, says Paul to his Jewish friend, 
God's granting of mercy and compassion on people does not depend on human will, their desire or belief. It does not depend on human effort, any works that they have done, but on God who shows mercy. Do you see? In this way, God is just. <laughs> Wait says our Jewish friend. How does, how does you defending God's freedom to be merciful defend God's being just? I, I'm a little confused here, Paul. I'm not following. Well, because, says Paul, determining right or wrong, what is unjust or just, demands a standard of measurement. Can we all agree on that? It demands a standard of measurement. You were right about that. When you said that earlier, it's just that that standard is absolutely and ultimately nothing less than God's own character. God, therefore, always acts justly when he acts in accordance with his own person and his own plan. So when God deals savingly with sinners based on his mercy, he is, therefore, just. Well, it's at this point that Paul can see by the scrunched up look on the face of his Jewish friend that he's not fully satisfied with this line of reasoning and that a reminder is in order. So Paul continues. Just remember, when you ask the question, I warned you. I told you that these truths might be a little hard. And I think that's because, you know, honestly, we think a bit more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We think that we're the determiners of what is right and what is wrong. And we might not say it, but sometimes we functionally believe that we get to actually judge the way that God is running things. But don't miss the amazing thing that he's pointing out to us. And see, this is what I came to understand, friend. Even as I have anguish over brothers and sisters who have not believed in the Messiah, the remarkable thing is that he chose. The remarkable thing is that he chose in that moment at Mount Sinai. I mean, think. Think of all that they had done. Think of how they had acted. Every single one of them at that mountain deserving judgment. It is stunning to think that he chose to have mercy on any of them. And the same goes for me. I'm absolutely stunned that he has extended mercy to me in Jesus. That he has showered me with kindness and forgiveness and compassion in Jesus. And here's the thing. Don't forget the other part of the story. As long as we're in Exodus, let's just keep continuing there. Let's go back even further from 32 to 33. Let's go all the way back to Exodus 4 to 14. You remember the story. Let me give you one bit of it. The scripture in other words, God, the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And we know that story, don't we? The story of slavery. And then plagues and proclamations over an entire nation and all the way along. God hardening Pharaoh and his sin and, and his rejection. Yep, that may not seem fair. It may not seem just. But God has a bigger story in play. 
God is taking this one dude who was a part of this larger lump. He was a part of this larger lump of sinful humanity that already rejected God. He'd already rejected God and was deserving of his wrath. God is taking that lump and forming him and putting him in the kiln of his plan to harden him. Yes, to harden him. But don't miss that it's all toward the end of saving those on whom he would have mercy. It's all toward the end of making a way for compassion on whom he would have compassion. It's all according to God's plan so that his power would be displayed and his name would be proclaimed in the whole earth. And what is his name? Yahweh. Yahweh is a compassionate and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. That is his name. All of that. Do you see? In other words, God is just says Paul, because he is acting in accordance with his own person and his own plan. And all of this, the whole story, it's about God and his freedom to do as he pleases. You see, it's not about us, friend. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to to harden. Well, at this, the Jew and the Gentile sit in silence for a while. It seems to make sense, but it's a lot to process, isn't it? It confronts quite a few presuppositions that we humans normally have about power and control and fairness and responsibility It's actually the Gentile who speaks up next. (laughs) Uh, Paul, I mean, that's all great. But why does God then still find fault? I mean, that's not fair at all. Because who resists his will? The, The Jew on the other side of the table shakes his head in noticeable agreement with his Gentile friend. Paul takes a few moments to let the question hang in the air and then responds. Again, that's a really good question. I completely understand how you would come to the conclusion that that God shouldn't find fault with someone like Pharaoh, say, whom he hardened in the kiln of his plan. It's good to wrestle with this and ask a question like that. But by the sound of your voice, I sense a little frustration. You sound a bit peeved about God and how he's acting, and I'm concerned by the look on your face and the tone on your voice and the stiffness stiffness of your back. And friend, I want to make sure that you understand that, that we've got to have the humility to see who we are, and we've got to be honest about what kind of relationship exactly exists between God and us, and then we've got to think a bit about what attitude that we should have towards him when we consider that relationship, what attitude is actually appropriate in that relationship. And I don't mean to be too harsh with you, but honestly, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? I mean, well, what is... 
form say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Look, I mean, we're all pretty familiar watching a potter slap a lump of clay down on a potter's wheel, are we not? Starting to throw a little bit of water on that and then getting that wheel turning pretty fast and, and getting their thumbs in there and forming and shaping and molding that piece of clay, creating different vessels out of one big lump that they've put on the wheel. So let me ask you a question. If you've seen that, you're familiar with that. Has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? I mean, how silly would it be as the potter's holding the clay for the clay to say, hey, stop that. Well, it'd be ridiculous. Listen, friend, it's just like we heard as Jewish kids growing up the words of the prophet Isaiah when God complained actually to Israel when they did that very thing. Do you remember what he said, my Jewish friend? He said, you've turned things completely upside down. You refuse to let God be God. You actually try to reverse the roles as if the clay has become the potter and the potter is the clay. You don't get to shape me. I shape you, Isaiah 29. So don't quarrel with your maker, challenging what I am making, Isaiah 45. And friends, instead of that kind of presumption and swagger, we need to be like Moses, who when he came into the presence of a holy God, took off his sandals because he realized he was standing on holy ground and he fell on his face hiding his face, afraid to even look at God in the bush. We need to be like Job, who put his hand over his mouth, confessing, I have spoken about things that I don't understand, realizing that he had wrongly contended with the Almighty and even accused him and had tried to rebuke and correct him. <laughs> I mean, friends, what if God, wanting to display his wrath and make his power known, remember Pharaoh who we were just talking about? What if he endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? I mean, listen, what if God is free to leave some, even harden them in their spiritual deadness? What if he's free to do that? What if by reserving the public display of his judgment against sinners until the end of history, God is able to make that judgment all the more obvious? Will you question his freedom as God to do that? And what if, listen now, because I think this is actually what God is trying to emphasize. This is, <laughs> this is the really good bit. This is what he's actually trying to emphasize with all of this story, this picture before us of lumps and peoples and remnants and promises. What if he is doing all of this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, on us, 
Jews and Gentiles. What if that's what he's doing all along, that he's going to break off this lump of Gentiles, bring them together and create a whole new lump of all peoples under Jesus? What if that's what all of this has been about the whole way? His ability to display, and because of the way that he's doing it, this brings him maximum glory. I mean, think of that. The revelation of his wrath to the objects of his wrath was with a view to the revelation of his glory to the objects of his mercy. What is most important to God is the disclosure of his glory. That's what's most important to God. The disclosure of his glory. And he has orchestrated events and told the story in such a way that that glory will shine most incandescently when disclosed on vessels of mercy highlighted against the reality of his wrath. And it's all of this. Mercy and hardening, honor and dishonor, objects of wrath and objects of mercy, all of it is rooted in his character, in who he is as a God who is merciful and compassionate and therefore is just. It is because he is who he is that he does what he does. And that doesn't answer all our questions. And it doesn't solve the paradox of his sovereignty and our responsibility. It doesn't. But what it does do is it makes clear, it makes some things clear about actually who we are and what kind of relationship exists between God and us and what attitude that we should have as a result. And Paul pushes back from the table, takes a sip of his espresso, and says, here endeth the lesson. For now, you'll have to come back in a couple of weeks, and I'll continue unpacking it for you over a cup of coffee or tea, if you like. You know, it strikes me that one of the most straightforward things that we can learn about God from Paul's little discussion here with his Jewish and Gentile friends is the utter freedom of God. Further, importantly, that, listen family, that there is freedom for us in the freedom of God. You know, the older I get, <laughs> the older I get, the more happy I am to rest in what other people bring to the table. The older I get, the more happy I am to let other people have the plan, to let other people figure it out, to let other people voice their wisdom and engage their skills. And I think this is seen far more in our relationship to God, who more than anyone else, obviously, <laughs> exerts his control 
for his plans and purposes and ways to come about, which, which I think should and can be, and if, if you would allow it to be, that can be a great comfort to you in countless ways. There is mercy to you in that in countless ways. You see, so often we think we know best. We so deeply and firmly believe that we understand all of the issues at hand, what the pathway forward should be, how this and that move will lead to the best outcome. We make judgments all the time on the course of our lives or that of others' lives. And fair enough, there's something to that, right? Like, we we have to make decisions. We have to live. We, We need to show judgment, be stewards, And yet the danger in this is that there is a certain hubris and self-centeredness that can arise when our plans don't go the way that we wanted them to. And we can get frustrated, angry. We can crumble to the ground in sullenness and despair and grumbling about it all. Like, you know, weather. And yet, if we think about it for a minute, we'd realize that we don't have the full story. We don't have unlimited power and wisdom. We're not even fully good so that we don't often have the best of intentions. Our judgment in all our plans, no matter how hard we try, is often skewed. I mean, how often have we looked back on our lives and realized that despite what we thought at the time, like at that moment, we look back and go, oh yeah, oh yeah. Wow, I'm so glad it went that way instead of the way that I wanted it to go. And wouldn't it be good to be able, like how often have you said, like it would be so good to know what I know now, go back to that moment in time, that little fork in the road, and to know that the way it was going to go and turn out, because what would happen? You'd be so restful. Like, I'd be so at peace if I knew in that moment the way it was going to roll. There'd be a kind of freedom in that, wouldn't there? And family... What I think we find in Romans 9, 14 to 24 in the freedom of God is that kind of freedom being available for us now and at every moment in our lives. Because unlike us, he does know the full story because he's already written it. Unlike us, he does have unlimited power and wisdom. Unlike us, he is fully good and he has perfect intentions. Unlike us, his judgment is never skewed and never off. Unlike us, he is always and ever merciful and compassionate. Always. Always. And he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and compassion on whom he will have compassion. And he will display his power in us so that his name is proclaimed in the whole earth. And he will form and shape and mold us in a way that will display his honor. And he will do this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory. Oh man, and all of this so that we could, I'm not at the coffee table anymore. I'm preaching now. 
Worship team, would you come up here? He's going to do all of this. Listen, he's going to do all of this so that we can rest. Listen, so that we can rest. This is what's so amazing to me. That we can rest comfortably in his freedom to choose to do what he wants. To choose how he will tell the story. You see, in response, we are free. We are free to trust him with all of the seeming paradoxes in the story. We're free to trust him that he has determined all things and the course of our lives and that he can still hold us responsible because all of our choices, listen, family, all of our choices are still real choices and are still meaningful. They're meaningful in this life that he has given to us. And you are able to experience, if you would take this on board, you are able to experience great delight in the truth that this grand drama taking place all around you, (laughs) it's not about you. It's not. (laughs) It's about him. That's who it's about. It is so that the name of Yahweh, not yours, may be proclaimed in the whole earth. Why isn't that the problem? That's okay, I'm not going to rant. It is so that his power and not yours may, dis- may be displayed. Listen, when you rest in this and him telling the story, do you know what that? It allows his power to do, be, be displayed in your life. <laughs> See, we can. We can start to think, if he's in control of all, my life isn't meaningful. Yes, your life is meaningful. You're bringing about the glory of God. What could be more meaningful than that? And if we would just ponder this for a while, if we'd make the coffee, the tea, the adult beverage, whatever, if we'd sit on the back porch or take that hike to that, hike to that special spot in the mountains to look out over the mountains or the stream or a valley or all of it together, if we just talk with God for a little while and then shut our mouths for a little while to listen for a while to allow his spirit to speak to us we may just find if we would do that an unexpected freedom in the picture of a powerful sovereign loving merciful compassionate God who is freely answering to no one and certainly not us but freely running this world in exactly the way that he sees fit. And because he's doing that, despite whatever bumps and trials and difficulties that we experience along the way, we may rest, we may rest in the truth that he is working together all things for good for those of us who love him and are called according to his purpose and believe in his son Jesus Because you see, he foreknew us and predestined us and is conforming us into the image of his son like a potter with clay. And because he called us, because he is just, he is also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so one day he will glorify us. And nothing, family, nothing, even all the things that God himself brings about like affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, 
Nothing can separate us from his mercy. Nothing can separate us from his compassion. Nothing can separate us from his love. In fact, if we would open ourselves to his providence in these things, we would be set free to understand that in all these things, even the things that seem unfair, even the things that seem unjust, it is actually, wow, it's actually in those things that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that there is this absolutely free God. And this is, this is what just absolutely blows my mind. A free God who has yet bound himself to us. <laughs> That's bananas. And if we would get that he loves us like that, then we would be persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of this free God through our Messiah, our Master, Jesus. Because he is God alone from before time began. He was on the throne and he is God alone. And right now in the good times and bad, he is on the throne and he is God alone. Amen. <laughs>